0: Hi everyone, welcome back to the Towards Data Science Podcast. Now, trustworthy AI is one of today's most popular buzzwords. Everyone seems to agree that we want AI to be trustworthy, but definitions of trustworthiness are often fuzzy or inadequate. And maybe that's not surprising, it's hard to come up with a single set of standards that add up to trustworthiness and apply just as well to a Netflix movie recommendation as a self-driving car. So maybe trustworthy AI needs to be thought of in a more nuanced way that reflects the intricacies of every potential AI application. But if that's the case, then new questions come up. Who gets to define trustworthiness in a particular context? And who bears responsibility when a lack of trustworthiness leads to harms like AI accidents, undesired biases, or other AI pathologies? Through that lens, we can quickly see how trustworthiness is a problem not just for algorithms, but for organizations. And that's exactly the case that Bina Amanath makes in her upcoming book, Trustworthy AI, where she explores AI trustworthiness from a practical perspective, looking at what concrete steps companies can take to make their in-house AI work safer, better, and more reliable. Bina joined me to talk about defining trustworthiness, explainability, robustness in AI, as well as the future of AI regulation and self-regulation on this episode of the Towards Data Science podcast. Of that conversation. I think you have a really great sort of, 10,000 foot view on this very complex space of trustworthy AI and AI trustworthiness, which I think definitions get very fuzzy very fast in this space especially, so it'll be good to kind of parse things out a little bit. But I'd love to get a sense before we dive in for what brought you to this space in the first place. Like what drew you to this area of trustworthy AI and, and yeah, what's, what's the backstory there?
1: yeah yeah and you know before we go into my backstory i'll tell you the ten thousand foot view comes from the fact that i've been in the weeds so it started from the weeds to come up to this level uh, my background is as a technologist i have uh, you know i've, I've uh, i'm a trained computer scientist and i've always been in the data space uh, for you know throughout my career it's just that you know that space has changed and evolved so much in the two and a half decades that I've been in this space, uh, right? When when I started, it was a SQL developer, SQL server, right? And you know that was pretty much the leading database along with Oracle. That's all we had for databases, right? And then I've seen the evolution from you know to the data warehousing and BI, and then came Hadoop, and that opened you know a whole new avenue to how to use data. So the, my training as a technologist uh, keeps me very anchored on technology. But as you know, AI started becoming real, I realized there were, you know, there's a lot of cool things you can do with AI, but there were you know, negative consequences that could happen with the AI. Right. And what we've seen in the past few years is a lot of headlines and a lot of conversation around ethics and AI. And for me, Jeremy, I think of it as, you know, we are in that um, technology phase with AI where the technology itself, the core AI technology is not itself fully mature because we are seeing researchers still, you know, developing the next wave of deep learning or reinforcement learning. And that technology is still maturing, right? I I just read, you know, from facial recognition, now we are able to go into, you know, recognizing uh, humans just by their eye. Right? So, you know, the, the technology itself is maturing. So that's one stream. And then there's a parallel stream where we're using that technology in the real world, which has real human impacts and which is driving real business value for organizations. And so everybody is using a technology that is still not fully matured and we don't really understand all the consequences of that technology and then the third stream is what i call under the trustworthy ai bucket is really around the ethical implications you know driving bias and uh, uh, transparency but also about you know being compliant and being uh, you know developing regulations and policies around it best practices none of that exists now each of these three streams that i just painted out is all accelerating at its own pace right and i think it's very important Uh, Just as we think about the value creation of AI, it's very important to think about how do you actually make sure that value is positive. It's not driving negative value. It's not leaving humans behind. It's not driving inequity. It is driving more equality. It is truly making human lives better. I am a technology optimist. Right. Because uh, because, you know, uh, as a trained technologist, I know that, you know, AI can do amazing things for humanity, for the world. But, you know, it can also, you know, do negative things if we don't, you know, help it focus on the amazing things that it can do. So that's that's my background. And that's what keeps me, you know, very focused on that third stream, because I think, you know, that third stream is very much at uh, you know, around a few um, catchy headlines. It needs to get beyond that headlines to make it real in the real world, in real businesses, in organizations. And uh, the, that, that, that was impetus for me to write the book. My background also, uh, Jeremy, has been working across different industries, right? I've been uh, at GE and you know done uh, w- worked on uh, ma- predicting jet engine failure, or predicting failure of machines in a factory floor. I've been at Hewlett Packard Enterprise, looking really at the you know how you know how do you think about ethics when you're, you're selling hardware that's enabling some of these AI solutions? What does ethics mean in that context? I've been at British Telecom, where it was more about uh, the human. Uh, uh, human connection. I have been mean, at E-Trade, where it was more around personalized marketing and using data to provide personalized marketing. Now, each of these scenarios, that third stream that I mentioned, trustworthy AI, is going to look slightly different. Uh, for example, if you are not using human data in your algorithms, if it is not driving uh, direct human impact, then, you know, it is, not, it is not so much about bias as it is about reliability of the algorithms or the security of the algorithm. So, you know, trying to bring together all my diverse experience, my grounding in technology together in one place is really, you know, the book, Trustworthy AI.
0: Yeah, and it strikes me as an important mission, not least because, as you mentioned, we have this phenomenon where all these AI capabilities are accelerating much faster than it seems we can keep up you know, there's been a lot of talk about whether regulation can keep up, whether uh, the people who are used to doing AI ethics can be retrained in technology fast enough to keep up. And with so much, I mean, one, one of the things that I personally worry about quite a bit here is there's such a strong economic gradient, pushing anyone who is technologically capable enough to contribute to capabilities, to, to get them to work on capabilities rather than to get them to work on trustworthiness, safety, things like that. Um, so I mean, I imagine that's that's a, a real challenge here, and I think it's part of the reason why there's so much fluff in this space, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. No, you 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 hit such an important point, right? I don't think regulations will ever be able to keep up. So it needs to be a balance between you know regulations are coming. We're going to see regulations and uh, policies coming around the space, but you're also going to uh, there's going to be a balance between those regulations and self-regulating.
0: So. When you talk about self-regulation, what for people who are less familiar with the incentives behind that, it can seem a little bit mysterious. You know why would companies decide to self regulate? Um, could you unpack some of the incentives around that? Like what is it that makes companies decide to move in that direction?
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. I think uh, right now the impetus is all the headlines uh, being a called to you know uh, public hearings about what their organization is doing and uh, you know it's a, a brand and reputational risk it is financial risk it is talent risk because you know the more and more employees want to be aligned to a mission that resonates with them and that where you know that ai is being used for n- not doing harm right not necessarily for good it can be for pure business value but as long as it's not really doing harm, so I think there are a number of risks, whether from brand or reputational risk to financial and workforce risk, uh, and that that will be that trigger, that will be the uh, the reason that companies will start thinking about self-regulating.
0: And do you think it's do you think it's enough? I mean, do you think that? Um, Especially given, no, okay.
1: (laughs) No, I I don't think it's enough. I think uh, that motivation needs to be there. I think uh, it's beginning to take shape, but honestly, Jeremy, it is still very early stages i'm I'm hopeful if we speak again next year, you know, maybe we are in a better place where companies are proactively thinking about the ethical implications, the being responsible and you know self-regulating to some extent. But in parallel, there are regulators who are working on uh, defining what regulations look like. Again, I don't think it'll be regulation just for AI. I think for regulations to work, it will have to be very much around, extending out external uh, existing regulations to include the AI component. Because AI is so context specific, it is very specific to uh, given how the AI is used in a certain scenario. So what, what that means is that regulation for that AI technology has to be relevant in that scenario. Take the case of uh, facial recognition, right? One of the most controversial uh, topics that we've heard about from an AI perspective is facial recognition, and how it is terrible, and it has been banned in certain uh, certain places. And the, uh, here's the thing with facial recognition. You know, you can use it uh, in, a, say, in a law enforcement scenario when you're trying to identify criminals. You know if if that facial recognition technology is not fully robust is not unbiased is you know really truly works it needs to be 100 percent accurate right because the impact of that technology being not fully vetted out is terrible right you're going to have the wrong people being arrested for crimes they did not do and you do not want that but if you're using facial recognition for say, identifying human trafficking victims at uh, from a traffic light, right? And that technology is being used by startups right now for doing exactly that. Um, you know, that is a scenario where, yes, if you can, rec- you know, uh, rescue 50% more victims than you could just by using human intelligence then absolutely, you know, I think we should use it. But again, it's a decision of the organization. If you're using facial recognition to unlock your phone, for example, right, it's a convenience and it is something that consumers can choose to. But if you're using facial recognition, say in the scenario of a manufacturing plant setting, uh, to see if somebody is dozing off at, you know, at, at a very critical, uh, work while working on a very critical machine, right, very dangerous situation. I think, you know, the organization has to make the decision on, it. yes, you know, by this technology is biased, but it is helping us save 85% more than we could without using this technology. It's a decision that the C-suite, the board members, the stakeholders of that organizations have to make. It is never going to be a one size fits all.
0: Yeah, I really like the idea of looking at domains of application rather than the underlying technology as a way of getting around some of the thorny issues when it comes to defining. I mean, you see this all the time in the European context, falling over themselves, trying to define AI in some kind of robust way when we don't have a definition of intelligence, let alone artificial intelligence that anybody can agree on. And so you have this just attempt to do philosophy on a deadline that just doesn't work because the people involved tend to not be technically savvy enough to kind of come to those definitions, if even you could define these things in the first place, which is challenging enough. One thing I wonder about though is, so this flip side of the story where in some cases, especially with foundation models, so we're now finding you know, these models with very general purpose capabilities, systems like GPT-3 that can do you know, not just text autocomplete, which is what they were trained to do, but now also you know, translating between languages, writing code, doing web design and so on. With these kinds of models, the potential malicious applications or the potential accident risks that come from their misuse and mishandling seem non-negligible. And I wonder if this affects your thinking about regulation at the level of application domain rather than regulating the process of developing models or the process of protecting them. I wonder what your thoughts are on that.
1: I will challenge that a little bit about, you know, regulations. I don't think it needs to be regulated. You know, fully regulated. It can never be fully regulated. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, here is what I would challenge: the creators, the developers, the technologists, the smart, brilliant brains who is who are building it. Can they spend ten percent of the effort that they took into developing it into thinking of what are the ways this could go wrong, Mm -hmm. and proactively address it? I'm going to challenge the technologists, the uh, you know, the engineers to say, you know, spend. Uh, whatever percentage they can contribute to to think proactively about what could bo- go wrong and put in those guardrails right because with great technology comes great power and you cannot just you know create this powerful technology and unleash it out to the world and see how it goes right? You really need to also have whatever project planning methodology you're using, whatever development methodology you're using, put in a step there to have a brainstorming, an ideation session on what are the ways this could go wrong and address those things. And, you know, Jeremy, there is no way you're going to get 100% of all the ways it could go wrong, but Mm -hmm. even if you get 50%, it's better than putting out this powerful technology with no thought on the ways it could go wrong and addressing it. Yeah. So I think we, you know technologists have to take some ownership on making sure that they're thinking about the negative consequences and addressing it proactively, even if it is just 10% of the things that they could address. Because we have brilliant minds, brilliant people who are working on this. So why can't we have those brilliant minds also focus on the ways it could go wrong? I know it's hard because, you know, as a technologist, I, I'm always enamored by all the cool things AI can do. Ooh, the shiny new thing that it can do. But, you know, I think it's time to step up and take responsibility.
0: Yeah, it certainly seems appropriate given it, it seems like one story you can tell about the the last 20 years, let's say in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, is that gradually like the locus of power in Uh, startups and big organizations like software companies has started to consolidate around the engineers themselves and away from strategic management. And there are now decisions being made by engineers on a day-to-day basis, like, you know, should we we build this feature into the model? Should we build that feature? How should we de-bias? How should we scale or whatever that have deeply strategic implications with profound business impact that if the C suite were aware, if the executives were aware that these decisions were being effectively outsourced to these development teams, they might go, "Whoa, whoa, whoa like we we have to be involved in that process." Um, is is there some kind of like uh, gap bridging that needs to happen there? Like, is there some sort of infrastructure yes. or way? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and and I do talk about it in the book as well, like changing fundamental uh, processes or you know how you do how you do. Whether it's development, like when we talk about AI, Jeremy, and to your point, I'll say you know we're talking mostly about you know the companies that are developing and building AI, but I, you know I think trustworthy AI is important also to the companies that are just buying AI or using AI. Um, so in either scenario, right from the board member to the uh, you know to the the uh, intern that's working in your company, everybody should have a basic fluency of AI. Should have a basic fluency of what are the ethical principles that our organization believes in and that we should be following and what that means you know how does it translate to real life every organization every company has an integrity training that you have to take when you join as a new employee and uh, you know i think you know extending it out to say that you know these are the ethical principles that we are aligning behind And, you know, and here are the things you need to watch out for. So it's not just the engineer. It is that marketing intern in your organization who is looking, doing the first pass of vendors who provide personalized marketing tools, who can ask those questions. Has your algorithm, you know, been tested for fairness? What what was the data set you used? So empowering every employee right from the board member to the C-suite is the first step to get your organization on the path to building trust and ethics into your AI systems. And it only comes when you have that base level fluency. And you know, if you wanna go further, then you can go into you know, role specific. Say you are a sourcer, then here are the questions that you should be thinking about. Here are the ethical implications that you should be thinking about. If you are a data scientist, here are the things you should be considering. Because it's not just a technologist problem to solve, it is a problem to solve across the organization because the risk, if you don't solve for it, is across the organization.
0: Yeah, it, it's uh, it's funny because, I mean, your job as an executive is really to propagate culture, like a certain kind of culture that you, know, you don't have the time to make every micro decision. That's the point of having employees. And so you try to give them this like very low bandwidth thing. I mean, culture is a low bandwidth product and you hope that people will interpret it correctly. But yeah, it does seem like AI is one of those domains where translating that culture into okay like what does that mean for the loss function that i choose what does that mean for you know the the, the architecture that i choose it, that that gap definitely seems like something that needs to be to be bridged
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and there's a lot a lot of work, you know, that's happening in startups and in academia in developing these kinds of trainings. And I think uh, even providing it to when you are an MBA student or an engineering student, right, taking it down to that level, making it part of your core curriculum, hopefully will fix for the next wave of, you know, the next generation of the workforce. But here's the other thing that, you know, I've seen working, uh, and uh, th- there is an entire chapter on this, and it's accountability whenever you are do building an ai solution you know have it as part of your uh, process or a step to define who is accountable for this if it goes wrong because that just you know and if it's is it the data scientist who built the algorithm who is you know that's doing personalized marketing is it the vp who you know who owns the whole it uh, you know mandate for ai is it the cio is it the ceo you know, having, you know, defined upfront, putting it on paper actually makes people more aware because if you have the CIO's name as accountable for this AI solution, trust me that a CIO is going to be deeply vested in making sure that solution is works and is ethical, right? So I think part of it is introducing these nuances of making sure that people really step up. It's not just one person's job, it is everybody's job, but, but you know, as part of the organization.
0: And, and do you have any thoughts about where specifically that responsibility should lie? So I'm, I'm thinking here about you know a, a self-driving car crashes. Let's say let's say it's a, it's a Tesla because they seem furthest along here or Cruise, and you you go, okay, well you know maybe somebody was killed or injured. Uh, do as you say. Do we blame the engineers who developed it? Do we blame the CPO who told the CEO that the product was ready to launch? Um, Like, do you have any any thoughts about the principles that people could use to reason like what part of the chain does which level of responsibility lie for something like that?
1: I think there needs to be a a sole, you know, uh, role or uh, who is accountable. Right who's going to face the Senate hearing if the you know, if another human dies, like who's going to go and face the court. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, and raising awareness that this is what happens and will not only get, you know, everybody involved in the discussion, but also being able to think uh, proactively and deeply about the ways it could go wrong and address it. It's not a single person, It is meaning it's not, uh, you know, in all scenarios, it's a data scientist. Or so in all scenarios, it's a CEO. I think it uh, it's it's going to depend on the organization's own maturity. Right now, what we're seeing is it it's always a CEO who has to go and face face if things go wrong, right? Uh, because that accountability has not been defined. But you might find scenarios where the risk is much lower, right? If you are if you show the wrong ad to the wrong person, you know. you you might put in a more junior level person as accountable for it. But if it is about a a wrong diagnosis to a patient, you might want a more senior level person, right? And at the end of the day, that person has to sign off. Yes, I take accountability for it because that's what fundamentally needs to change within the company's culture and processes for for us to see more focus, to going back to your earlier point on self-regulating, right? So I think uh, I think it's, it, again, just like AI, it's not a one size fits all. It will depend on the use case, actually.
0: It does ring true, because it, it's gotta be so different case to case. I mean, every, every application is different, whether you're building like internal tools for a company and the mistake only involves a loss of money or actually killing someone. Um, I wonder if one other dimension to this might be the level of cognition that we're offloading to the AI. So when I think about, where we're going with, again, foundation models and increasingly powerful systems, it seems like we're, we're having them do more and more of our thinking for us. And it seems like that lives at one end of the continuum where we're trusting AI systems with stuff like potentially managing you know, nuclear fusion reaction, which no human being can plausibly expect to oversee. And on the other side, you, know, you have like a, a simple decision tree or, or even a statistical mean, if you think of that as a machine learning model. And then I feel quite comfortable blaming the data scientist who misinterpreted it or, or you know, the the, the person who works with it. Um, so is that a dimension that, that you see is important here? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Take the example of, you know, natural language processing of, uh, you know, being able to generate text. Um, uh, I know, you know, we've seen enough examples where an AI can call and make an appointment for you. Right. And mm. which is cool because you can outsource and, you know, the AI is going to make your next salon appointment and you don't have to keep calling back or don't have to figure it out. But what if that AI is uh, is actually, um. Uh, speaking on your behalf right what if i outsource that ai who's a digital right. twin of me to have this conversation with you is that ethical is that you know what are the implications there if the ai says something but it you know it was trained on my digital twin data so i think the complexity and that use case again comes into the play is it depends on where it's used and how it's used that exact same technology is can be used differently
0: okay well great now i'm going to barrel right into a a very um a very contentious question just to, to pivot things because i think it, this is one to focus down your book is about ai trustworthy ai and the, the term trustworthy ai is one i think that's fairly controversial in terms of what it actually means and you know just its definition so I guess my first question is like, I'd love to hear you define trustworthy AI and specifically, I'd love to get your sense of whether you think trustworthiness is a property of a specific AI system or a property of an organization or team that manages or deploys AI systems, if that makes sense.
1: Mm, Interesting. That's a great question. So trustworthy AI, to my earlier example, trustworthy AI is everything that falls under that third stream. So trustworthy AI includes ethics fairness, and bias, but also includes the robustness and reliability of the algorithm, includes, you know, adhering to data privacy, adhering to uh, safety and security. Uh, And and it's all grounded on governance and compliance and existing regulations. So trustworthy AI is everything that falls in that fuzzy area beyond the value creation of AI. And where, where does it fall in terms of you know where you would place trustworthy ai i think it is it it's actually uh, a scenario where if you start with you know as a like as a technology ai is mature is mature comparatively in terms of its use case in the world right um, so if you're starting from ground zero if you're a new organization a new uh, um, a new team that is looking at using ai within your organization Then, you know, thinking about trustworthy AI early on and putting the guardrails in so that your team can innovate faster. That's the ideal scenario. You know, defining, you know, what are the ethical principles? What are our trustworthy characteristics? And we define those guardrails so that the team can innovate faster. That's a great scenario. But most companies are already using AI in in their teams today with for you know either for internal use or for external they're using it so it is more of doing an assessment of all the ai they currently have and then being able to you know do almost a backfill to make it trustworthy but also setting up for future uses of uh, ai that can be trustworthy
0: and so would it would it be fair to then say that trustworthy ai by your definition has to do with side effects like we're, we're trying to minimize yes. si- okay so it's yes. undesirable side effects that we're trying to minimize
1: it is to r- reduce the number of unintended consequences because so many times the the questions uh, you know so many times when the headline comes up it's like oh we didn't think about it right it's an unintended consequence Mm-hmm. You know, and trustworthy yeah, is reduce those unintended consequences. How can you proactively think about it? Remove those, you know, unthought of side effects. Let's proactively think of those side effects.
0: Okay, great. So with that definition in mind, I think you have a, a number of different, I think, six different elements, if, if I yes. remember correctly, to your definition of trustworthiness. Or, sorry, six different, I guess, subfields that play into yeah. it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I was just going to say to give context, it's just, you know, at this point in time, even if you can go across, you know, think through each one of those dimensions, I think, you know, you would have at least put in enough time to think about the side effects. It's no, right. in, by no means fully comprehensive.
0: Okay, no, great. And it's, it's good to have that in mind, because I think really no attempt to mitigate the side effects of deployed AI systems is going to be 100%, you know, surefire, but... Um, so one of the, the dimensions, one of those six things that goes into defining um, AI trustworthy AI is transparency and explainability. And I, I'd love to to hear you kind of explain what, what you mean by that. And specifically, I'm curious about when you think a model is explainable enough or how we should think through that threshold.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, you know, explainability is one of those cases where, you know, Everybody has, it's like, you know, we all have this massive elephant and everybody is just looking at their own little part and, um, you know, explainability has to be, you, you it's part of your design or planning process. You need to define who does this model need to be explainable to. Is it just the data scientists and the data science team, the AI engineers? in that case the language you use how you would explain would be different it'll be referring to you know here are the libraries that i used here is the data i trained on you know it would be more technical but is it does it need to be explainable to the ceo or the board is it you know again you know to your point it is about how risky is this right so if, it, if you're explaining it to the cc suite and the board members Then it's a level of uh, explainability that needs to be more verbose and ties into the broader business context. If you need to make it explainable to the end user, who can be an external customer or an internal customer, it needs to be looked at from that lens. So explainability is true only when the person who you're explaining to understands it. It's not explainability to the developer who developed it. It is explainability to your target audience. And that's the nuance. And that's why it's complex. Like everything with AI, this is one of those areas that is complex. It's not a one-size-fits-all. I feel like like I'm repeating it, Jeremy. But it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. And that's why the thought needs to be put into it when you think about explainability. Who does this need to be explainable to? Uh, And here are some nuances around transparency. How much transparency do you want to have? Because we know that the more transparency, the more that system is going to be open to potential hacks or you know malicious actors coming and training it with the rogue data, right? How much of the transparency do we want to have? Where, you know, if it is going to expose core IP, right? So those are the discussions, decisions that you need to make as a team, as an organization, to you know then define the path forward. How much transparency? that, you know, are you going to really provide? And the reason to do it is, it means that you've thought through it. It's not an afterthought. When you go through this process of thinking through transparency and explainability, you know, yes, there is additional work in terms of if you want to make it explainable to every every customer that's going to look at it and to the C-suite members, you know, there is going to be multiple variations of it, but that also makes your AI more robust in a way that it's thought through, right? You've thought about the side effects and you've mitigated it to as much as you can. It's not gonna be hundred percent covered, but you've at least thought through it.
0: Yeah, this is really where I, uh... I'm a fan of processes like algorithmic impact assessments or model cards that, you know, you don't necessarily, like you say, they're not necessarily going to solve your problem. It's more that it imposes this step of reflection and thoughtfulness in the development process where at least you're contemplating some risks, you're contemplating the side effects. Yeah.
1: I like to, you know, think of it as being mindful Mm -hmm. about AI, you know. Uh, I almost named this book "Mindful AI," actually, because it's 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 really just being mindful. The things that you're building, the things that you're creating, or the things that you're buying today can have side effects. Just be mindful of it. Just be aware of it. That's the first step. You know, we've been too caught up in the headlines, and you know, we've been you know trying to solve it at this very high level. And what I'm trying to say is you need to take more responsibility at the organizational level, at your team level, at an individual level within your organizational context to say, yes, I have thought through it and I've done my best and this is what we thought through. Because the next time a new team comes in, a new team member, you know, they can see what has been thought through and say, oh, you didn't think about it. And you keep adding on to it, right? And isn't that part of the robustness part of it, right, where you've actually made your AI solution or AI product, truly robust.
0: Right. Actually, that that brings us to robustness, which is something we've talked about on the podcast in the context of AI alignment and making sure that future AI systems don't exhibit, let's say, dangerous behaviors when they encounter scenarios that that they haven't encountered before. Um, Could you give some some examples of robustness failures maybe that you've encountered in your professional life working on on AI uh, in production?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I also define robustness also uh, in terms of being able to not go wrong easily, right? So, um, so you know, and I think the classic example is chatbots. Uh, everybody who has been on the AI journey has experienced some version of the chatbot going rogue we know all the famous ones but you know that's something that i've seen in in, in my own uh, experience right or being able to um, re- when you are building a chatbot uh, thinking about accessibility right it's something that you know uh, it doesn't come proactively uh, another one that i can think of was this device and this was more of a precursor to the uh, to the floor the automated vacuum cleaner the floor one,
0: oh, the room, right?
1: Yeah. yeah the, uh, so you know, it uh, it was uh, uh, trained on data but which was which didn't take into account uh, some Asian cultures where people actually sleep on the floor, and the, you know they would. It was trained to pick up pet hair, mm-hmm. right? But it and you know. The, the hair that's engaged, that's not attached to anybody's head, but you know it actually went and sucked up a, a, a lady's ha- hair who was actually sleeping on the floor, and that's very common in uh, you know some of the cultures. So you know that that's a scenario where it was not robust enough because it's not you know thinking about the different cultural or different uh, scenarios where it could go wrong, and the reason it's important to think in the context of that the floor vacuum cleaner, because in that case, you can define what does robustness mean for this AI product, right? And and it removes that conversation of, oh, but in healthcare, this would be what robustness is or this in a factory, this would be, you know, you need to always define that box or the, you know, what is your solution doing and define robustness in the context of that box.
0: Yeah, that, no, that makes perfect sense. And, And it's, it's, it sort of reflects the um the fact that often the solutions that ai systems come up with are dangerously creative and impossible for humans to anticipate and so trying to come up with a, a very broad rule that covers everything like we're never going to be able able to outthink uh think a roomba that's had uh, you know who knows how many hours of training time to kind of dissect the optimal strategy to do x y or z yeah
1: and that's that brings me to the point of you know just where it's crucial to have diversity on your team, right? To have not only from a gender or race perspective, but also from different cultural, geographic backgrounds, and again, from you know, from the the product that you're focusing on, right? It's um, you you have to decide, you know, what are the perspectives that we're missing at the table, and make sure that either you 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 know track for it or try to get you know some voices from that. That to bring in those missing perspectives, I don't think we do enough of that.
0: As well, diversity of political thought. Uh, this is a dimension that I think is is um, I think very, obviously very important because people with different political worldviews have different world models in a very fundamental way. And yet, it seems to be underemphasized, at least from my perspective. There's a lot of talk about sort of diversity of physical characteristics. But as you say, cultural diversity is an aspect of that. Political is almost a subset of cultural diversity, where you sample people from every different kind of geographical coordinate in the country. And where you, when you look at representation in tech, it, it does tend to skew along every single one of those axes. And yet, I guess one of the challenges with that sort of thing is like, does, does this introduce problems for from a recruitment standpoint, whether at the political or cultural levels? Like, how how would you think about about that sort of problem from a recruitment standpoint?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And it, you know, I'll just say at a higher level, if your AI is not working with human data, you don't really need to, you know, worry so much about uh, uh, about the different nuances, right? It all depends on what is your AI doing? Um, it, it, it is hard to get that cultural perspective, but being able to acknowledge and document in your process that here were the people at that table, at, at our table when we designed mm. or developed or, you know, built this AI. And again, it comes to the same thing of, you know, you will never be 100% accurate. You may not even know what the gaps are, Right. Right. So, you know, having a a rubric of what is a list of diversity that you need, which factors are important for our product and uh, trying to, uh, you know, trying to get in that perspective, um, either through direct recruitment or through, you know, um, tapping into think tanks or research groups who are focused on those uh, that specific cultural group. Right there, there are organizations focused specific cultural groups, so you know, maybe you just need a representative from that group to come in. And you know test your model or test your ideas or you know th- test your hypothesis, just like you, you know, in the past, we, we used to have you know uh, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking out on the term, but you would have testers coming in and testing a new taste. For a new, uh, you know, juice, for example, right? You need to make sure like that when you, yeah, you need a focus. Exactly. Sorry, you need a fo- you need focus groups to make sure that your your gaps are identified and that you're addressing it because it's impossible to cover every aspect of diversity in every AI team. That is, you know, I think that is impossible, and I I, I think we can we should get creative about how we fill those gaps.
0: Yeah. And actually, this this also makes me wonder about smaller companies, because, of course, you know, larger companies, more revenue, you can afford to go through this sort of process. Um, Are there things along the continuum, let's say, to the full focus group approach that might work at the margins to help make things a little bit better?
1: Yeah. So here is my hope that, you know, if we can get the large organizations to figure this out and over time, we will. Uh, you know, what we don't have today is playbooks and best practices right. on things that work, right? Like everything, there are best practices, right, from ML Ops to DevOps to, you know, all of those technology components. There's no playbook around trustworthiness or ethics. And that's what, you know, like if the large organizations in healthcare can do it, then I think the startups in healthcare can then learn from those best practices, from the playbooks, and then you know start in, you know evolving. It is um, you're absolutely right. It is very hard if you're a startup to you know stretch out into focus groups and you know go beyond your you know product product charter to really think about those side effects, right? Um, so over time, my hope is we'll have playbooks, best practices. Uh, There's a lot of literature out there, but today what happens is most of the literature is more theory and, you know, it's not necessarily tangible and, you know, practical application, but I I think we're going to reach an era of where you're going to see more of that coming from the large organizations that can then help the startups and smaller companies to learn from them. Today, it's, uh, you know, today my advice to smaller companies would be, you know, include uh, you know, include some time in your product planning design phase to think about the side effects and yeah, address it, as much as you can.
0: Yeah, I mean, it almost seems like that that idea of deciding on a certain percentage of your development cycle, so you're going to devote to making sure that there aren't second order effects to what you're doing that are undesirable uh, is is probably probably the best thing we can hope for at the moment. Um, do you actually expect that the best practices that we'll see, are going to consolidate fast enough to be relevant, given how quickly things are accelerating. So in this context, I'm wondering, like, you know, in, in the, say, pre-2020 era, before foundation models like GPT-3 became a thing, we had this era of just pure, narrow AI. and. Pure narrow ai right you can you can regulate it at the domain of application and the application is equivalent to the model but when we talk about foundation models that mapping breaks and all of a sudden a whole bunch of the thinking that we've done about narrow ai becomes invalid and i guess i wonder if like should we expect to ever be able to quite catch up with our best practices and our playbooks
1: yeah no i think it will be uh, i i don't the technology is moving too fast uh, to be able to catch up, you know, there will always be new, uh, new um, technology evolutions that come at us and that challenges us. Here's, a, here's, a, here's why it's happening, right? Because all of the investments go into, you know, the value creation from, from AI or technology, right? Uh, it's, there is very less investment onto the side effects of that technology. Uh, you know, even going beyond AI to think about Metaverse, AI is a big component of it or NFTs, right? Where AI is not so much a big component of it, but you know, you, there are all these technologies coming at us and they're blending together and creating new scenarios. Yeah. So I think it's impossible to play catch up. It is just embedding that that fluency that I come back to, right? Embedding it in your DNA, think about the ways it could go wrong metaverse great but what are the ways this could go wrong who is it going to leave behind how do we make sure that we don't drive more inequity you know who is you know who is thinking about that we don't see enough about it right yeah. so it is really important to uh you know get into that into our DNA and maybe it is, you know, by going down to the schools and colleges level and making sure our future workforce doesn't come just thinking about technology and value creation, but is also thinking about the negative uh, side effects and, and is fully aware into it. For our current workforce, it is more of, you know, we need to train them. We need to make sure that they're thinking about this, that metaverse developers should be thinking about how her work is going to have you know probably drive more inequity? What if what what if people don't have access to computers? What what's going to happen to that to them? Are they going to be? How do we how do we proactively think about it? And it's not something you and I can you know decide for anybody, but it it needs to be part of the DNA.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I, it also um, it also jives with I think a lot of what we're seeing nowadays in terms of companies being to some degree, the the capabilities, the raw capabilities are starting to get so significant in AI, so so powerful, that the thing that limits our ability to get value from our AI systems is less and less the capabilities of those systems and more and more their alignment with our values. So we look, for example, at GPT-3, which is objectively a super, super powerful next word predictor. It's like, an incredible autocomplete system, right? And, and we have others like Gopher and Microsoft Turing and LG and so on. But um, but you do get you know toxic outputs sometimes that make users go whoa, like that's not what I want. Um, so I guess uh, I, I would hope, and I wonder if, if you would agree with this, but I would hope that over time as our ability to get value from these systems is limited by our ability to make them more robust and align them with our values, that we will get better and better at just that, that it will become an inextricably um, linked process with the capabilities building process. Do you think that's realistic? Absolutely,
1: yeah, absolutely agree with you. Couldn't have said it better.
0: Okay, well, let's hope. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Let's hope. Let's hope. hope.
1: That's that's my ardent hope, you know, for my children, you know, for the future generation, you know, it is up to us to really get this right and, you know, get more mindful and thoughtful about that those side effects.
0: Awesome. Well, Bina, thanks so much for for joining me for this a really fun conversation. So many different topics that we covered, so I do appreciate it.
1: Jeremy, thank you so much for having me.